When our elementary school playground had a pile of snow, it was almost certain what we were going to play at recess, at least us guys. It was King of the Hill. If you haven't played it, it's pretty self-explanatory. You claw your way up the hill and try to get on top to be the king. Pretty much anything goes. It was normally a big sixth grade boy who spent most of his time on top. Occasionally some stealthy underclassmen would get him off the hill or people would gang up. King of the Hill is the best way to describe what we're going to study over the next few episodes. Men and one woman clawing their way to the top and staying there using any means possible. When we left Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, God had just told him he was going to rip the kingdom from him, actually his son. The prophet Abijah comes to one of Solomon's project superintendents, Jeroboam, rips his cloak in 12 pieces and hands 10 of them to Jeroboam. Dude, those 10 pieces are the 10 tribes God's handing you. He's ripping them from Solomon and handing them to you. He'll keep two pieces in Solomon's line because of his promise to David. We're then told Solomon dies, and one of his sons, Rehoboam, gets two of the pieces. He assembles all the people at Shechem. They're ready to make him king over all twelve tribes. But they have a request, more likely a directive. Chill out on us. Back off. Your old man taxed us and worked us to death. If you ease up, we're all yours. Of course, Solomon had worked them and taxed them to death. Remember all those laborers going to cut and haul cedar? To quarry stones and haul them to the temple? That's not even touching on his horse stables, botany projects, fortifications, etc. Solomon lived out exactly what Samuel warned the people back before they chose their first king. He'll take the best of all you have. He'll take a lot. Anyway, the people said, chill on us and we're all yours. The old men advise them, they're straight up right on. Listen to them, sonny boy. But Rehoboam's young friends saw an opening to do what Solomon did and more, to make a name for themselves. They suggest he applied the whip a little harder. Rehoboam listens to the young bucks and tells the people that very thing. They basically say, Rehoboam, drop dead. Rehoboam said, I'll get an army, and that's exactly what he does. He assembles 180,000 troops out of his two pieces left, Judah and Benjamin. He's going to go get his ten pieces back. But God has other ideas. He says, Rehoboam, go home. You're not just fighting them. Now you're going against me, and you're way out of your league. Right now we need to make something really clear in Israel's history. They split, north and south, much like we did in the U.S. in 1860. The north, ten pieces or ten tribes, keeps the name Israel. The south, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, is now going to be named Judah as we go forward in their history. So when scripture refers to Israel, it's talking about the ten northern tribes taken by Jeroboam. When the text talks about Judah, it's talking about Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes. Now on God's promised land playground, there are two hills. And guess what the boys do? Claw their way to the top. I want to talk about the first two kings a little more. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. First Rehoboam. Though God allowed him to be the king of the southern hill, Judah, he was no bargain. Second Chronicles adds details to first kings. He had 18 wives and 60 concubines who gave him 28 sons and 60 daughters. Spiritually, we're told, quote, he abandoned the Lord, unquote. Back to first kings, we're told he built shrines and Ashtera poles on every hill. He implemented shrine prostitutes. 
Yes, this is the same practice the ites did, the very practices which drove God to drive them from the land to begin with. Judah, Rehoboam's southern kingdom, starts to decay. Shishak, the leader of Egypt, attacks all the way to Jerusalem's walls. Imagine knowing what God had done to the nation of Israel during the time of Moses and the Exodus. Now the descendants of these same Egyptians are clawing at the walls of their capital. Surprisingly, Rehoboam repents. I mean, it's still not good. Shishak comes into the city and hauls away the treasures of the palace and the temple. We're told Rehoboam replaced some of those items with cheap replicas. Kind of a facade. The things were still great when they weren't. We're also told God pulled the merciful lever because there were some good people in the land of Judah. We'll find out in a moment why some of those good people were in the land of Judah. And of course, there was that matter of a promise to David that one of his sons would stay on the throne until a real king came. Rehoboam was the king of the southern hill for 17 years until he died and his son became king of the hill. Then there's the north hill, Israel, and their king, Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a poster boy for power corrupts. You'll never forget his name. Having been handed ten pieces of God's people, he immediately gets political. He starts thinking, you know, if my ten tribes go back to Jerusalem for those three times a year festivals, they're going to start wondering why we're split north and south. The ladies will say, ah, the boys are fighting about something. We need to get back together, and they'll get back together. So for entirely political power reasons, Jeroboam, the king of the northern hill Israel, does some despicable things. He has two golden calves fashioned. Yeah, like at Mount Sinai. He puts one in the northernmost place and one in the southernmost place. Now they've got a god, an image to worship. He implements new festivals so they won't go to Jerusalem three times a year. He installs his own priests, not Levites, the ones who can buy their way in or schmooze their way in. The Levites escape to Judah, thus some of the good people in Judah. Then, of course, he builds a new altar. And when the altar is built, he burns his own sacrifice, just like Saul the first king did way back when. It's during Jeroboam's sacrifice a prophet shows up. He lets God's prophecy against the altar fly. He says, one day in the future, someone's going to arrive from Judah, desecrate this altar with the bones of Jeroboam's priests, and then destroy the altar. God even names this person, Josiah. And just so Jeroboam knows that long-term prophecy will happen, God gives a short-term sign. He says he's going to split the altar in two. And sure enough, that's what happens to Jeroboam's altar. Jeroboam wheels around and points to the prophet, only his arm won't move. It's seized up, paralyzed. Of course, in trouble, he asks the prophet to pray that his God will bail him out. And God graciously does. Once again, we're reminded obedience is the key for politicians and will discover for prophets. Jeroboam invites this prophet home. The prophet says, not on your life. I was told by God to head straight back to Judah, to not even turn aside to eat. But on the prophet's way home, he's intercepted by the servants of an older prophet. The quick story is the older prophet lies to him that God has told him to come to his house. The young prophet falls for it, goes to the man's house and eats. Then this older lying prophet 
gives the young prophet a prophecy of his own. He'll die on the way home for disobeying God's direct order not to turn aside. I know, right? It makes you want to wring the older guy's neck. Obedience is the key for both politician and God's prophet. What a mess. Remember in Genesis, Jacob was renamed Israel. He had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually, as he promised, God gave them the land. Now they were divided into two, north and south, permanently. The ten northern tribes, Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah. We'll discover the north will last 200 years before utterly disappearing. And during these 200 years, you won't believe what these kings do to claw their way to the top of the hill and what abominable things they do on that hill as Israel's leader. We'll discover some of those things in our next word picture.